Thank you for being a friend Travel down a road and back again Your heart is true You're a pal and a confidant I'm not ashamed to say This is an Andrew Gold song. If you know Andrew Gold, the son of Marnie Nixon, by the way. Yeah, it's pretty cheesy. I know. But we're talking Golden Girls today, which is why I want to bring it up. By the way, Andrew Gold, I, I still like Lonely Boy. I still think that's a really good song. Hi, everybody. Check Your Brain Podcast. It's Tony Mazur here with you. Thank you for listening to this. And uh, if you're a Golden Girls fan, uh, please, I don't know, stay with us. This is a fun podcast uh, we have going for you today. Uh, I got a chance to interview Jim Colucci. Now, Jim Colucci, according to his website, is a freelance entertainment writer whose work has appeared in such publications as TV Guide, Inside TV, Quick and Simple, In Touch, The Advocate, Next in CBS's Watch Magazine, where he served as deputy editor. I'm not going to pretend that I didn't just read that. <laughs> but he's also the author of a great book. He's, he also has one on Norman Lear that I'm going to talk to him down the road as well. But uh, this is called Golden Girls Forever. It came out in 2016. And I've wanted to talk to Jim for a number of years, which you'll hear in a little bit, uh, because I've been obsessed with the Golden Girls for so many years. And, I, I, and to be honest here, the Golden Girls is one of these shows that it's been on in my family. My mom has played it. We've seen the reruns uh, over and over again. Watched it first run, although I don't remember it too much. But my mom had something. She had to babysit me. She had a young kid, and what's there to do on a Saturday but watch the Golden Girls? So um, so I've been watching Golden Girls for a while. And I was going through, about 2014, I was going through a breakup with a, my then-girlfriend. And... Uh, I stayed with my parents, and I, I moved back home for a little bit, wondering how long it's going to last, maybe a, maybe a week, a couple of days. Instead, I never went back to that apartment, and we never got back together. And I, I was going through a long depression for a while and was wondering what it's going to take it, for me to kind of shake this funk. But one thing I did really enjoy was there was a two-hour block at the time. I think it was on the – it was on TV. I think it was Hallmark Channel. And they did two-hour blocks of shows where there was two hours of Golden Girls and two hours of Frasier. And I, I depending on the Frasier episodes, because the early ones, I loved Frasier. Later ones, I, eh, okay, I get it. You're taking this concept and you're really, you're really squeezing this one dry. But I loved the Golden Girls from season one through season seven. And it was one of the few things that really brought me joy around that time. And uh, yeah, I was going through job problems, relationship problems. But one thing I really enjoyed was watching the Golden Girls every weeknight with my mom. So it always brought me a lot of joy. So it means a lot to me, this show. And uh, so I get a chance to talk to a guy who had a passion project, a long 10-year passion project to write a book about the making of the Golden Girls, all the behind-the-scenes stuff, whether it's the girls themselves, Rue McClanahan, B. Arthur, Estelle Getty, Betty White, the guest stars, the, the frequent guest stars, the Harold Goulds and the Herb Edelmans of the world, uh, to the, you know, the one-off people and the writers and the production and how everything went into this project of the Golden Girls. So 
it really was kind of a it, it was a great opportunity that I had always wanted to talk to him after hearing uh, reading his book and hearing him on a couple of interviews. I'm like, heck, I want to interview him right now. So it, it was really cool t- uh, talking to Jim. A long conversation. I probably could have split it in two, but you know what? I, I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it that much. And I hope you do, too. Uh, and by the way, uh, if you want to subscribe to my Patreon here, so if you want to check me out, the Check Your Brain podcast is also on Patreon. So you might be hearing this episode for free, but I recorded it a while ago. If you have Patreon, if you subscribe to my Patreon, you got this episode immediately. As soon as I got done mixing this down on my Adobe Audition, you got it right there. So subscribe and you get extra podcasts uh, each week of you know me ranting about something so you get early access to guests and all that it's just five bucks a month i mean think about it I'm probably doing 20 something shows for five dollars 20 shows a month it's a lot of work labor of love help me out here folks i'm trying to put food on and no, let's be honest it's beer money <laughs> it's just it's just booze money at this time so anyways We're going to talk a little bit of booze here in just a little bit. So without further ado, here is my conversation with author of the great book, Golden Girls Forever, Jim Colucci. Uh, Tony Mazur here, and uh, I've, been lo- I've been saying this, I've been looking forward to this uh, this interview and talking to uh, Jim Colucci here for a number of years, and uh, I, I want to talk to you a little more about your uh, project and your uh, book with Norman Lear in a little bit, but the, kind of the reason I wanted to get you on was talking about the Golden Girls, and I am somebody that... Uh, I don't have basic cable. I have YouTube TV, but every so often with the amount of options, we have Netflix, we have HBO Max, and obviously just any other option. Yet I'm on TV land every Sunday morning and afternoon watching the same Golden Girls episodes I've been watching for about, what, 30 years now. And I just go down this, this rabbit hole of the Golden Girls, and I just can't stop watching. It has the staying power. It... Uh, I mean, I would say it's it's still relevant in a lot of ways, although some of the references are kind of dated and obviously the styles and everything. But the Golden Girls and Jim, it, it, with your book, Golden, uh, Golden Girls Forever, is just it's fantastic. And it's one of these shows and especially I point to everybody and, and I've instructed everyone to go uh, check out the book for a number of years is that uh, because it came out what 2016 is that everybody who watches like the golden girls especially even like my boomer father will just go like oh you're watching this again and then he'll sit down and watch and start laughing go okay this is pretty funny so even the people that thought there was a stigma with this show in that oh you can only watch this if you're a female or you're gay or you're whatever it's like everybody can really watch and go okay that's a really funny line that Sophia just said oh that's a hilarious line that B. Arthur just said it it crosses over and it still has that lasting power that's such a good point because when i think of the fan bases who have been very vocal about loving the golden girls it has been women particularly women my age which you know i didn't want to insult them by calling them middle-aged but i am um and often gay men young gay men older gay men but the more vocal straight men out there haven't been there they i think there are many straight men who love the show but they just haven't been vocal about it and 
And a lot of times their entry is that they watched the show either as a kid with their grandmother or they caught it in reruns or they watch it now with a wife or a girlfriend. There are many men who watch it. And I think that's evidenced by I went on uh, the Golden Fans at Sea cruises in 2020, right before the pandemic. And I expected there to be big groups of girlfriends together and big groups of gay guys. And there were there were mothers and daughters together. There were girlfriends together. There were, you know, uh, gay guys or gay couples. But there was a significant amount, too, of straight couples, of the husband and wife who both loved the show. Or, you know, sometimes maybe the husband would be there because the wife loved it and he was dragged into it. But a lot of times it was the husband and wife who loved it. And it's it's really interesting how the show, when ostensibly it's about old ladies and NBC, when they first picked it up, expected it in testing to be popular only among old ladies. And they thought, why are we even doing this show? And there were naysayers and doubters. But they found out in 1985 in their early testing that contrary to their expectations, the Golden Girls tested well against every demographic, including kids, which they never expected. (laughs) Because kids saw little pint-sized Sophia as a little rabble rouser. And And she was loud and funny and they identified with her. So it's funny because we do have these preconceived ideas in our society about who can like what, first of all, and also there's a misogyny. There's a built-in misogyny and ageism that, oh, old ladies, they're not cool. And yet this show has been proving that wrong for decades from the very beginning. Yeah, and I'm born 1988, so my dad was a police officer in those days, and my mom's home with me. So what is my mom going to do on a Saturday night while her police officer husband is patrolling the streets and I have this newborn baby well there's nothing else to do eight o'clock I'm gonna go watch the Golden Girls on NBC and that was going on throughout my you know up until I was about four years old when it went off the air and the syndication the, the staying power although I will say I didn't watch Golden Girls with my grandmother but I think we watched Designing Women and I just I I don't know that was a little and then Empty Nest which I want to get into because I oh not not a fan. I'm just going to say that right now. Not a fan. And every time that Empty Nest episode of Golden Girls comes on, it's just like, eh, I guess I'll put something else on for another half hour. So many fans say that, that they hated that attempted spinoff. The, uh, the weird thing about that episode, if you remember, the one we're talking about is uh, Rita Moreno and Paul Dooley play the girl's next door neighbor. And the title Empty Nest actually makes sense in that episode because they're worried about their daughter going off to college. People, though, fans hated that episode. Rita Moreno has said publicly that she hated making that episode. Uh, I actually think that there are moments in it that are worth watching because the girls are in it. And they do, you know, there are moments with the girls that are kind of funny. But yes, there are also then we go off to the next door neighbor's house and, and there's a, a guy with multiple personalities. There's a lot of weird sitcom tropes open, happening over at the neighbor's house that are not really worth it. So I, I see why people turn that episode off. The, the weird thing is, those were the, the those were the days where they tried jamming those sitcoms in where they're it's uh, like you saw this with I, I think Home Improvement did that with um, Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer is that they tried to they brought these guys on these young comics and they were having problems with their their girlfriends they want some advice from Tim the Toolman Taylor and then all of a sudden it's like well the episode was so popular let's give them a show and they did and obviously it bombed just like a lot of other options of 
back in those days. Even the Norman Lear days where they did that with uh, Maud, and which we'll get to that too as well, and the Jeffersons and all that, where it's this show has so much popularity, let's see if we can spin the side characters off into some other show. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it like the Ropers. Sometimes it didn't. Yeah, sometimes it didn't. But, you know, and not to get too far afield from Golden Girls, but there are several different ways of accomplishing a spinoff. And one of the ways is to take a character who over time has proven to be popular and give him or her their own show. For example, Rhoda had been on Mary Tyler Moore's show for years and before she got a spinoff. So that, that kind of happens more organically where it, the, the character and actor show to be such a powerful combination that the, they think they can carry their own show and they spin them off. And then there are ones like you mentioned, even when, when B. Arthur went on All in the Family as Maud the first time, Norman had in his head, this could be a show. She's so good and whatever. So sometimes they're testing the actor. Could the actor carry his or her own show? And then sometimes it's intended to be a pilot for a show from the very beginning. And it's just like Empty Nest, the Empty Nest episode of the Golden Girls. That was intended as a pilot from the beginning. And it's called an embedded pilot. So they make it as an episode of the parent show so that they're basically not wasting any money because if it doesn't go, it's still an episode of the Golden Girls and it can still be included in the Golden Girls syndication package. So uh, Empty Nest was clearly from the beginning an embedded pilot and it was one that fans didn't like. Yeah, and but it, but it lasted for how long? Empty Nest well, no, was on TV see, a while. It didn't because the show that eventually went on the air called Empty Nest had nothing to do with that original Empty Nest. There was no Rita Empty Moreno Nest. <laughs> right. Well, that's the irony. It was a completely different cast. The Empty Nest series was about Harry Weston, played by Richard Mulligan, and his two daughters. And other than David Leisure, who happened to have been in both, uh, it was a completely different cast and a completely different concept. And, and it made no sense to be called Empty Nest because in the Harry Weston version, his daughters were living with him. It was anything but an Empty Nest. So it was... It was a, the, a case of the producers were very much in love with the title Empty Nest, having read about that as a new demographic phenomenon and wanted to shoehorn that into something. So they created the series that uh, that was anything but an Empty Nest. David Leisure, by the way, for folks uh, paying attention at home, was Joe Azuzu. And he was also uh, one of the two. Was it was it the Hari Krishna from the Airplane? The airplane. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was a Hari uh, Krishna. Like, sorry, we uh, gave it the office. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's get into this about your background with uh, the Golden Girls. This is a what a ten year project that you put this together. It really is a labor of love. But you had goings on where you were actually on the set in the studio audience and and getting a chance. Was it the last season that you were there? It was. I had just gotten out of college. I'm 51. I graduated college in '91, and Joe went until spring of '92. And I happened to have been sent out to Los Angeles on assignment for my new job. And one of the first things I wanted to do being in L.A. was go to a Golden Girls taping. And I knew it was the last season. And I'm so glad I did. Not just because I ended up writing a book about the show, but because I really feel like I witnessed a piece of history. I've gone to many TV tapings since then. I mean, I would literally say a thousand since then. But you don't usually feel like you're witnessing history. And even with the episode I saw, which I wouldn't say is particularly a fan favorite it's the episode was room seven and if you remember that episode was where blanche goes to the family plantation in atlanta to uh, keep it from getting knocked down and she handcuffs herself to a radiator and to keep the bulldozers from from knocking it down wasn't that where she actually actually got caught on the radiator like she got handcuffed and couldn't get loose that's a behind the scenes story but yeah she actually (laughs) got literally locked to the radiator and for a minute nobody could get her get her unlocked (laughs) but uh 
in that episode, I mean, that's a good episode, but I, don't, I wouldn't say it's one of the ones that fans rattle off as their top favorite. But it was still, I knew I was witnessing history. I'm witnessing this all-star murderers row cast. I'm witnessing how they interact with each other, how they interact with the audience. Uh, you know, a- again, how a classic sitcom is made. It was really, I'm so glad. And the funny thing is, I was 22, and I dragged my friend from college, who also was now living in L.A., and she and I went to the taping, and we were, as much as I say the show is beloved by everybody, that studio audience, at least that night, was mostly older people. And so we were, you know, two brown-haired heads in a sea of gray. Yeah, and, and that wor- that show worked with that live studio audience, but as far as, like, me watching, because I watch very analytically where – I watch shows where, oh, that's a clear laugh track, and then this is a clear, you're getting the natural reaction of the studio audience. The problem is, is and what you were able to see, was that uh, Estelle Getty was having some of the problems with dementia, and not only that, dementia with the stage fright. So she was forgetting lines, and they had to keep doing them over and over again. What was it like being in this? Now, were you there when that happened? And if so, or if you've talked to people, that they were still able to get that just burst of uh, just an explosion of laughter when Sophia would deliver a one-liner, even though it's probably the you know, eighth time that she's had to do that same line. Yeah, well, any sitcom suffers from that problem because whether it's the actor not being able to remember the lines or the way shows are made now where they want to get coverage of this angle and that angle or they want to try an alternate joke, I would say it's almost a fault of every multi-camera sitcom today that they do every scene too many times and they wear out the audience and they jokes wear out their welcome. So that happens on any show that you go see. It could be the best show on television, but if you're watching the 10th take of the same joke, there's diminishing returns. And so they have to edit laughs from one take or use a, a take that maybe was a little weaker but had better laughs. It always has, It's always a balancing act. I can't say that I saw Estelle struggle in person. By season seven... They were allowing her, because there was a new director and they realized that she was really having a problem, they were allowing her to use cue cards in a lot of cases so that she had something in the distance to look off at, or at least the security blanket of knowing the lines were there, which would sometimes fix the problem, because then you don't have the panic. Uh, And also, they were going to what they would call pickups, which is after the audience is released, you can go back and get just that bit of a scene without the audience and then probably edit the laughs in from the actual audience. So pickups can sometimes work. Actors don't love that because it makes it means they have to stay later and they don't get to feed off the energy of the audience. But, you know, if it's going to be a matter of one actor having to do something 30 times, then you do it. Uh, but the, the main thing that I noticed about seeing Room 7, and it, this was different the way the Golden Girls taped than the way just about any show I've seen today does it. Although it was in the Golden Girls day, it was not uncommon and it had been done that way before was that they did two episodes. They taped each episode twice. All in the Family did so as well. A lot of classic shows leading up to the Golden Girls had done this, and then the practice kind of has gone away, and now it's just one long taping. So what the Golden Girls would do is they, they did a dress show and an air show. And that means the first show that they taped, they considered a, a dress rehearsal, but they taped it because if something went particularly well, or, you know, that's the good take they got of something. They could use it. It was in front of an audience. They were in hair and makeup and costume. It, it was completely viable. But the second show, called The Air Show, is the one where they knew that if they hadn't gotten it right in the dress show and they still weren't getting it right, that's when you have to do multiple takes. So because I saw the dress show for this episode, Room 7, and I didn't realize that's what was going on, so it's funny. I'll tell you in a minute. 
the, I didn't witness them have to do anything more than once or twice because if they didn't get it in the dress show, they knew they would had another shot at it in the air show when they taped mm. it later. So nobody had to do things over and over. What was weird about that, and as I said, I didn't know I was witnessing a dress show. I didn't know the difference at age 22, was that in the scene where Blanche handcuffs herself to the radiator uh, to keep the bulldozers from coming, Rue handcuffs herself to the radiator in the as I'm watching the take, but the handcuffs didn't close on the radiator or malfunctioned or maybe she deliberately didn't close it. I don't know. But as Rue is acting as if she's handcuffed to the radiator trying to you know, gesticulate, Rue is moving both hands, including the one with the handcuffs, which is clearly not attached to the radiator. It's only attached to her wrist. <laughs> and I keep going to my friend, why are they not redoing this? Because they were going to move on. Why are they not redoing this? How is this going to work? I didn't realize they had another shot mm. at it, which is when they obviously got it right. Okay, yeah, because there's certain uh, there's certain things with spontaneity that goes on, and it, me and I've been doing stand up for a number of years, and the one thing is that we thrive on spontaneity, and when you work in radio, uh, we go to air, and there's no, I mean, we could tape things like we're you and I are doing right now, but it's kind of one of those cases of you want to go for the spontaneity, so you know, or, or even just doing a stage play that this is it, this is what you have, and certain shows that they got to get that massive reaction or else you're not going to get it like i always think about the seinfeld episode where um kramer hits the golf ball into the ocean ocean yeah. and it goes into the whale's blowhole and george is it pretends to be the marine biologist that explosion of laughter from the crowd that's watching him pull the golf ball out you ha like you can't you can't recreate that that's just a natural reaction but then obviously right. there are certain times where you also have really good actors and Jason Alexander was a great actor who nailed it in one take and was able to do that. Not saying that well, the girls aren't, that, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't have even had to nail that in one take because if you remember that was shot on a real beach. So you can't have a stadium full of, of audience members watching them film on the beach. So when sitcoms, even multicams film a scene like that, they do that as what they call a pre-tape. They film it outside the studio. And then during the course of the taping of that episode, they will just show that pre-taped uh, scene to the audience on monitors so the audience will actually only see that once and mm -hmm. you'll get their reaction that, that one time because it's already on on film yeah it's it's some some shows they they really do pull it off and others where you can hear the clear laugh track the the yeah. 1950s studio laugh track uh, or when you watch like the flintstones for whatever reason had a laugh or track. the love boat i'm writing, <laughs> writing a book about the love boat right now and you know, some of the producers have been very funny, joked with me that the laughter in these scenes, they say, where are these people laughing in a rowboat somewhere? Like, where, who, how are they watching these scenes and that they're laughing? I mean, it's so artificial that there's a laugh track and you can hear specific laughs that you recognize from I Love Lucy, because that's when the, most of these laughs were recorded mm -hmm. and they're still used. Yeah, we it, basically what they had to do is they guided the studio audiences to say, okay, here's a joke that they're going to say a line that's just hilarious, like knee slapping. Then here's one that it's kind of shocking, but it's, you know, you're really guiding the, the audience on what to say there. But uh, that thankfully that they were able to do that live with the studio audience with the Golden Girls. And, and kind of getting along with that is that when you talk about the live performance, that's kind of how the Golden Girls actually began. It began as just a, a small concept, and it really took off. Talk about that. Even in 1985, and unfortunately still true today, the Golden Girls is an unusual and rare show to get on the air. It's very strange that it actually made it to the airways, the way TV works and the way it always, always worked. 
And it's never made sense to me. I wish TV executives would figure this out. But yes, the way we've watched TV over the years has changed. It used to be the nuclear family in front of one TV set. That's all the family had. And now we can all watch our own screens. Uh, television has always skewed toward a little bit older and, you know, the decision makers. In the beginning days, they assumed it was the housewives who controlled the remote and made the household decisions on on what floor wax or what uh, toothpaste or even what car to buy or what movie to see this weekend. These days, as streaming has taken over, especially among the younger audiences, network television is skewing older and older. And yet, all everything that any Hollywood exec wants to develop has to be about young people. And they really get scared about picking up anything that has to do with old people. If there's ever an older actor in something, they're just playing the lead's mother or father. And, and even then, they're not even old enough to be the lead's mother or father the way Hollywood casts things. But it just doesn't make sense to me that a concept like the Golden Girls wouldn't be able to be picked up today. But it's it's still true because networks are still chasing after a youth market that doesn't want to watch the medium. Even though Tom Selleck is still on television and yes. Blue Bloods, I've never seen one episode yet. It's always top five, you know, on television because people want to watch something and they want to relate to something. And right, but when you look at the demographics of Blue Bloods audience, it's all people Tom Selleck's age. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, casting aspersions on that at all because, again, another weird thing is that it's always been true that middle-aged to older people have more spending power have more discretionary income. And so it makes sense to advertise to them and to program for them. But networks, there's this Hollywood pool factor that they're afraid of of going for the fishing where the fish are. So yeah, you're right. Blue Bloods, NCIS, some of these CBS shows that are popular in the US and around the world, uh, they skew older. And yet when it comes to comedy and when it comes to even CBS, they're, they still are trying to get younger all the time, and I don't know why. Well, we see. I see this in radio, is that, uh, oh, we need an alternative station uh, because it's going to get young people. It's going to get 25-year-olds, you know, that money demographic. And I'm like, yeah, they're listening to Spotify. They are not listening to radio. Go right, Like it. you said, fish where the fish are. And if you're, right. if you're deciding to flip your format where whether you're playing Christopher Cross music or you're playing Van Halen, well, people who like Van Halen are probably in their 50s or maybe in their 60s. And those are the people who are still listening to radio. Instead, you want to play music that's geared towards younger people that aren't listening to your product. So TV is kind of in that similar situation, newspapers, hence why this is all part of the uh, the old medium. And, uh, you know, it's, right. it's rapidly changing, and I don't know if people are adapting to it properly. I don't think they are, and that radio is a great example. Yeah, I mean, I know that if, by all means, if you can get a young audience, and, and that's that, that can be an advertiser premium, because sometimes it's hard to reach young people via an advertising vehicle, and, and advertisers will pay a premium for it. By all means, do it if you can get them to, wa- to watch or to listen. But in some media now, they just don't want to do it. You have to you know, go for what you can advertise to and also for what the audience wants to see. Yeah, and back then, the audience did not want to see, what was it, Manimal was on TV, but Miami, yes. but, but like, you know, NBC went through that whole process where, uh, and now we're, we're going back to uh, the beginnings of the Golden Girls, is that NBC came off of, well, I, I'm very fascinated by TV, because you were talking about Norman Lear earlier, is that the 60s, and I'm watching Beverly Hillbillies the other day, which got lampooned and just beaten down by the critics in the 60s, 
but was always at one of the top shows on television as far as ratings. Then there was the Rural Purge of Fred Silverman, 1970-71. Then you had the more socially conscious shows, the Norman Lear shows of the 70s. But NBC kind of took a real back seat to the... Uh, to the to those shows on CBS and ABC had the TNA television essentially with Charlie's Angels. So NBC needed to figure something out and just figure something out quick. Well, it wasn't until about the what the early to mid '80s that they finally did figure it out with Cosby and Miami Vice. Yeah. yeah. So it was right around that time. So there were, you know, there were a couple of hits, a couple of misses, but that's where the Golden Girls concept began was from one of those ridiculous promo nights for NBC. Like, here, here's a couple of our shows. And, and it was like Doris Roberts doing a sketch or something. Yes. And, and you, you walked us through the history leading up to that moment perfectly. It's so true. NBC was, every network has its peaks and valleys in terms of whether it's doing well or not, and whether it's number one or number three. But NBC was certainly not doing well at that moment. And they did get a hit with Miami Vice and with the Cosby Show in '84, and they were doing a, a, networks do these upfront presentations to advertisers in May, where they show what the new schedule is and try to get advertising, and they also do presentations to their own affiliate stations. And so this was one of those supposedly like a rubber chicken dinner, some boring industry presentation, and star after star had been dragged up to the stage to read off, read patter off the teleprompter that was boring, and all of a sudden, was Bob Hope there that night? I don't know. I have a photo of it. I'll have to go look and see. I mean, he he had a longstanding relationship with NBC, so it's quite possible. I think uh, I think it may have been the case where uh, I talked to Tom Leopold, the writer who's on Cheers and Seinfeld back in the day. Yeah. And I think he wrote for Bob Hope. I could be wrong, and I m- may have been that night again. Another one of those. It's it's basically it's for the affiliates, and hey, right. here's what we have going on. But you know, they're not really to keep them on board because affiliate. You have to make the affiliates willing to air your program. If you're NBC, you can't force them to. There's all kinds of regulations of what's the difference between owning a station and having an affiliate. But yes, this is normally a boring industry presentation. But until this one moment when Selma Diamond, who was at that moment on Night Court, and Doris Roberts, who was at that moment on Remington Steel, two NBC shows, got up to the stage and their patter was that they were supposed to be talking about Miami Vice but they misread it off the prompter. One of them misread it off the prompter as Miami Nice. Sel- Selma did. <laughs> and so she said, there's this show called Miami Nice, and it's about nice Jewish old ladies in Miami and how they get along. And and then the shtick was that Doris would correct and say, no, Selma, that's not it. It's, it doesn't say nice. It says Miami Vice. It's about cops. And, my, and the audience loved it. it. You know, these were two pros, again, talking about, older women who people probably had lower expectations of just because of the way we treat older women. All of a sudden, these women get up and they're killing it. And everybody sits up and they're taking notice. And NBC really took notice. It went from a joke in a presentation to, hey, maybe there's something there. Look how well those two did together. Look how they captured attention. Maybe that is a concept. And there are other things that people say were going on at the time. Brandon Tartikoff says in his book that he had gone to Florida and visited his aunt and seen how she got along with her neighbors and how they poked at each other and made fun of each other. And he also says that he was watching how, how to marry a millionaire with his niece. And it was about three women in New York getting along together. And it kind of, I think that all kind of germinated in his mind until he was like, you know, this is something let's get a writer to flesh this out. And through a miracle, it went to the exact right writer, Susan Harris. 
Yeah, and Susan Harris uh, of soap fame. And uh, uh, now at that point, because she was experiencing, as mentioned in the the episode with Dorothy, where she didn't know what was going on with her. uh, She had this kind of problem and and no doctor was able to diagnose it. And Susan Harris was, was she willing to take on another series at that point? Not necessarily, because Susan Harris had been through the ringer in television. He had written the Maud's abortion episode of Maud, Maud's Dilemma, and as much as that is heralded today for being so important, and it wasn't its take two, it also was controversial. And then she went on and created Soap in the late 70s, which was controversial from moment one for the topics they would talk about. The moral majority crusaded against it. It was just, it was a battle with the network, with the censors, with the public from moment one. So I think that Susan really had been burned on television and was not completely over it, but was cautious. And at plus she does have chronic fatigue syndrome. And what happened, ended up happening was Susan uh, was not with the, the people who went into pitch from her company that day, but her husband, Paul Witt and Tony Thomas, their, their uh, producing partner from Witt Thomas Harris, went in with a writer to NBC to pitch something else. And that pitch didn't land. I guess NBC didn't didn't want to bite on it. But as they were walking out, Littlefield, Maren Littlefield, who was under Tartikoff at NBC, said, you know, that's not for us, but we do have this concept I want to tell you about because maybe this could be it. And he told them the Golden Girls concept. And I don't know who the writer was that who Thomas and Witt were with that day, but he or she apparently wasn't interested and when when he he or she was walking out to the car Witt and thomas poked their head back into littlefield's office and said you know we do know somebody who would be interested in that though and they meant susan and when they brought that idea back to susan as as burned out as she was about television and not necessarily eager to get back in the fray she heard wait they want me to write about older people i love writing about older people you never get to do that this is such an opportunity i'm in wow and then i mean and she wasn't involved in every episode like there's not like i mean she's on created by susan harris at the beginning but she's not involved in every episode you see that with a lot of shows like wasn't the wonder years it was was it marlin's black is that what the company was uh, the 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 writing. Well, that's a person, Carol Carol Black. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of shows uh, have that where the the someone as a writer creates the show, and that pilot is then the template for what will be duplicated with different storylines mm-hmm. over and over. And so you get a created by credit. Sometimes the creator stays with the show as either a show running executive producer or a writer, and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. In this case, Susan didn't stay with it day to day, but. Particularly in season one, she was there a lot. She wrote quite a few of the episodes. She wrote the first episode of season two. She wrote the two-parter about, called Sick and Tired about Dorothy having chronic fatigue. So when she was motivated to want to tell a story or it was a particularly important episode, you know, something starting out season two would be an important episode, uh, she was there. So she wasn't there as a day-to-day presence. I, one thing I was wondering about that is it, we were talking about Seinfeld and Larry David left the show and Jerry became the executive producer for a while. And you kind of noticed the change in the show, even though it was still really funny, but you saw the kind of turnover where it got a little goofier than the Larry David, more you know I, Woody Allen type of misdirection, miscommunication stuff. Was Susan Harris happy with the direction of the show after that, like from season one all the way through season seven? Or were there peaks and valleys where she was happier at one point and not so for another? 
She, Susan Harris has never criticized any episodes of the Golden Girls to me as, oh, that's over the top or ridiculous, or I like this era better than that. But it is clear with the Golden Girls that there are two distinct eras. And I, you, I always felt it in the comedy. Watching the episodes in syndication, you can really notice it. With that seasons one through four are markedly different from seasons five through seven. Mm-hmm. And I actually can't decide which regime I like better, which is odd because usually with a sitcom, when it changes, I, I, I have a clear idea. Oh, I liked it better before or I like it better now. Golden Girls, I like both versions, if you can call it that. Seasons one through four were run by four showrunners. Uh, Terry Grossman, Kathy Spear, Barry Finero, and Mort Nathan. And they called them the Beatles uh, at, behind the scenes. And, and they were the guiding voice of the show. After season four, they decided to leave. And some producers who had worked under them took over and other executive producers were brought in. So it was Tracy Gamble and Richard Vaxey who got promoted. And then they brought in a man, Mark Sutton, who had worked on Laverne and Shirley and other shows. And when the, when the new regime took over, the show got, I would say, and I'm not saying this in a bad way. It's just, I can't think of a better, a better word. Sometimes more cartoony. It would definitely get more over the top, more surreal, but they did it so well that, some of my favorite episodes are from that latter era, so I can't say, boy, that's too over the top. I still love it. I can always tell the difference in the because you know they're all from the the same era as far as you're talking mid to late '80s, early '90s. So the styles are way different, but you can always I can always tell which episode it is by looking at uh, B. Arthur's hairstyle, where yes. she has the mod hairstyle in the first couple of seasons, and then she starts growing it out a little more, which is what she had towards her later years. And you go, okay, so this one's got to be an older or older one. Okay, this one's probably one of the eh, I'd say '91. This one came out and. You can kind of see that little bit of difference. And also, uh, the other one is the jokes were different. Is that in the early episodes, I noticed is that the jokes were more, I don't want to say hard-hitting, but kind of, I don't want to say over the top either, but like just really like, oh, they really got they really got Dorothy in that one. And towards the end, you can kind of tell that, and from, and from reading your book, that B. Arthur was actually a real softy with this, and she took a lot of things personally with some of the insults because... Uh, she's, you know, just everybody on the show is kind of a character, but if you're insulting somebody's appearance, they carry that with them off the air. And I, and I completely understand that. So you saw the jokes were a little bit different as the show went on. They were. And, and in seasons one through four, I think the show in general was more character comedy. It was still character comedy in the latter, but the latter also added in that surrealism element where they would do episodes like the full moon where weird things happened or, you know, the McKinley lighthouse and they would go Mm -hmm. further afield and it would, it wouldn't necessarily, the jokes wouldn't necessarily be as personal or as, as, you know, like jabs at each other. It could be, it could be joked about other things, but seasons one through four were more concentrated in the household and a little bit more character based. And you're right. That part of the problem with that was that, and I always wondered this, even as a kid, I remember watching a sitcom or you'd watch say example married with children and a woman would come into the shoe store and she'd be a fat woman and you'd know al was going to call her fat and insult her and you knew that's what she was there for mm-hmm. and i remember thinking that poor actress did does she you know does she respond to casting calls that say fat woman needed to be insulted or you know who who when, it, when it's a character on a sitcom who's supposed to be ugly who wants to go for that oh that's me that's my bread and butter you know it's, it's i had never understood as an actor how you withstand that and then I learned through B. Arthur that she had a hard time with it, and I don't blame her. And you're right. 
when you call Rose stupid, Betty is anything but stupid. When you call uh, Blanche a slut, Blanche isn't Rue. Rue had a husband. You know, she wasn't out dating at different, had a lot of husbands. So she had joked about when, whether she was or not like Blanche, but still was not Rue. Sophia, Estelle wasn't even as old as Sophia. That was a wig. So, you know, when you make fun of Dorothy for being ugly, how can, how does B detach herself from that? You can't as an actor. And so there got to be a point where B just, she actually cried at a table read and said, no more, no more Dorothy batching. You've been calling me a big, ugly man for four years now. I can't take it. And they had to switch direction and really move away from that because they had used it a little bit as a crutch. Sitcoms, when they, sitcom writers, when you discover something works, you go to that well over and over and over. You know, they didn't know that St. Olaf stories would be a thing until they hit, until they were good. And then it's like, oh, here's, a, here's something to do every episode. You know, let's go to that well over and over. And they were great. And I don't think they ever peaked. But it did peak with Calling the Ugly. Yeah, and I think, uh, like you said about uh, TV writers and just uh, comedy in general is that, yeah, well, you go to the well until it's dry. And with those, it's like, okay, so this works and people are really enjoying this, but... Uh, it, now, it, and there's also the competition in a writing room where it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta put the funny, especially if you're a young writer and I'm on the Golden Girls. This is a hit show. I gotta say, I gotta write the funniest things to write down, and they, I gotta see if this makes it to air. And then, you know, you're on a table read, and this joke talking about how, you know, B. Arthur looks like uh, Buddy Ebsen or something. You're like, oh, <laughs> like, I right. mean, is. I mean, that's one of those where I'm like, okay, I, it's funny as a comic, you know, it's very dark humor, but I, if I were in that situation, I wouldn't think it's funny. Right, exactly. You know, there are several things that happen in, in writers' rooms, and you're right. There's competition. Everybody wants to have funny the other, and that is healthy for a show because you want to get funny lines. But there's also, there's a phenomenon where it's almost like they really, they compare it to taking drugs, that a, a, a dose of a drug that used to get you high now seems commonplace. And to, to get the same high, you need to chase a bigger and bigger dose. And so it's the same thing with jokes that a joke that in season one would seem crazy funny now seems every day if you're if the show has been doing them for years. And now you got to top yourself. Yeah, you got to go bigger. You got to go funnier. And there are often writers, you know, who are wanting to, to compete and be the one who comes up with a funny line. But then I, I, I can only imagine what it's like as the writer who's written that line to remember that then you have to go on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever morning to a table read and face that actress who you're calling Buddy Ebsen and now see her face. You know, that, that there's definitely a disconnect that they would write these great jokes and then, uh-oh, <laughs> we're insulting this woman. There was there was a similar story to that. I heard uh, Bob Einstein used to tell this story. I don't know if you know, heard about this, but on the Smothers Brothers, uh, they had Kate Smith on, and she was a guest star, and they were doing a skit where Tommy Smothers was playing Stan Laurel and Kate Smith was Oliver Hardy. And you want to talk about <laughs> you want to talk about somebody who's going to get really offended by that. And apparently, in the table read, she goes, uh, "Yes, yeah, so who?" Uh, and doing the Bob Einstein impression of Kate Smith. Uh, who's the one who uh, wrote the uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy sketch? It's like, oh, yeah, that was me. It's like, well, you're the reason I'm not doing the show. And she gets up and leaves. And and then so they had to convince her and say, okay, we'll take that out. We'll do something. You know, oh, that's another nice mess. You've got. It's like, you, again, it's, yes, it's funny. 
but it's mean funny, and somebody's going to take it personally. Uh, unless you have a really good sport about it, and somebody who can, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I, I totally understand. But Well, you need somebody who knows how to cry all the way to the bank, as they say. But I I, I couldn't do it, and uh, a lot most actors have bigger egos than I do. No, so yeah. it's tough to it's tough to find somebody who can make that their bread and butter. Oh, I'm I'm fine with being made fun of and called fat and ugly. Oh yeah, great. The uh, you talk about writers and ego and everything. Was there uh, improv on the set, or was this just? I mean, they read their lines and they basically read it to every syllable, every preposition. Like what what was going on with that? Uh, as far as what made it to air, as opposed to what was written on the text. Most multi camera shows don't leave a lot of room for improv anyway because you have to hit a very specific mark you have to make pretty specific timing obviously your setup needs to lead to the other person's joke when you were talking before about spontaneity you can be spontaneous on stage on a broadway stage not that you necessarily should because a lot of actors won't like it but you could throw in a wild line as they say or you could uh, try to cover for somebody's mistake because there are no cameras filming you you don't have to hit a mark but with multicam it's so timed and so specific and pre-planned that it really makes it hard to do that um in that in addition uh the golden girls was a place where the writing was so strong you didn't need to and b arthur really didn't like it there's a story in the book about uh uh jay thomas if you remember him he had been on murphy brown and and he was on happy Morgan days Min yeah uh, was he on happy days yeah i, I think remember. so yeah but and he ended up Toward the end of his life, he passed away a few years ago. He had a show on Sirius XM, mm -hmm. really fun. Uh, the show Love and War on CBS, really fun actor. I really loved him. And he told me the story about how he was playing the director of the pizza commercial that Dorothy and Sophia were making, if you remember that B-plot mm -hmm. of an episode. And he said that during rehearsal, he, and he, as he said, he used the phrase, threw a wild line, but he actually said that although he, he had felt welcome on some other shows that he had done previously to do that, he knew that the Golden Girls was not one, but he actually accidentally inverted one of his lines and said it in the wrong order, and it made the producers laugh. And he thought, huh, I wonder if I should do that in the in the performance. And then he, he debated about it, and he's, he thought, you know, I'm going to try it because I've never known a show where a producer says, you know, we'll, we'll tell you, don't do something that got a laugh. They want the laugh. So he kept doing it, even though the first time it had been a mistake. And Estelle took him aside at one point and said, you're either really brave or really stupid. Because everybody was watching B's really pissed off reaction at him changing the lines. Ooh. And he did it that way at the taping. But he said it, it made for a, a very tense tape night because B just did not like, you know, B, again, was a, a, a precision master at that craft of of stage acting and sitcom acting in particular. Mame. Her timing was beyond, beyond reproach. I mean, the probably the best in the business of sitcomdom. And that took whatever process it took from her, including a precision of lines and timing. And so if you threw her off, I understand her not being appreciative of that. Yeah, so you're talking, I mean, when the Golden Girls debuted, she already had about, what, a 40-year acting career at that point, after yes, the war. Yes, but mostly not in television because... Mm -hmm. She only came to television in 1971 or two, whatever that was that the in the first season of All in the Family that uh, it was 71 that uh, Cousin Maud's visit aired. And then Norman brought her from Broadway, having seen her and loved her and stuff and known her in New York. So she came to television in 1971, but she was, you know, not young at that point. She had already had a long stage career. 
I think what's interesting about the the beginnings, and I, I honestly I didn't know this until I read your book, because there were there were stories about how they were able to get the the cast together. And r- reading your book, basically that B. Arthur was like, I I don't want to be on a show where we're just playing the same parts from previous sitcoms. This just seems like it's a you know, greatest hits tour that were just jamming in there. And, and they're like, and what I didn't find out until I read your book was talking about how actually uh, uh, Rue and Betty switched parts. And that was one of the reasons they were able to convince B. Arthur, who was originally the Susan Harris's target for that part, right? Yeah, Susan Harris wrote the Golden Girls pilot. And in the Dorothy scene description, which is in the very beginning, because if you remember the pilot, Dorothy walks into the kitchen and is talking to Coco, and the other girls haven't been introduced yet. It says Dorothy, comma, a B. Arthur type. And oh, as really? I said, Susan had worked with B on Maud and knew B's work and you know wrote that character with B's voice in her head. And the network originally resisted casting B because of Maud's abortion and because it was so politically divisive. That there were, even though the audience knew her well, as according to the Q scores, which measured TV popularity, they also didn't necessarily like her because half of the audience was against abortion and against her. She was popular, so, but she was like hateable popular. Well known, but not necessarily popular. You know, they measured two different things. Do you know her name? Almost everyone said yes. Do you like her? About half of them said no. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was split among party lines. So they had to investigate other ways of doing the show. B and uh, Betty and Rue were approached originally to play characters much like what they'd done before. Betty was a pl- approached to play Blanche because she had just come off of playing Sue Ann Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, who was a man-hungry woman, and, you know, much like Blanche. Rue had uh, played Vivian on Maud, who was a second banana, who wasn't as sharp as Maud, who she was much more like Rose, and. The act, Ru, Betty had said yes to the role of Blanche, and Rue was pl- approached to play Rose and really had read the script and had her heart set on Blanche and didn't want to do it. But she also didn't want to miss out on doing the show because she knew the show would be something. And so she reluctantly agreed to play Blanche. And then I had always been told, and I think it's the director, Jay Sandrich, had taken the, the fall for this, had taken the blame, that it was his idea during a rehearsal with Rue to say, you know what? I don't necessarily believe you're innocent, like Rose. Why don't you go down the hall, learn the Blanche lines, come back and try that? And I do believe that happened. But as I just took that Golden Fans at Sea cruise with Rue's real-life sister, Melinda McClanahan, Melinda let me know that the fix was in the works even before that, that Betty and Rue had been cooking up a way to switch roles Mm. and had talked to Jay about it. And so they were all kind of plotting. All right, we've signed on to do it this way. But what if we convince everybody to let us switch it around? Interesting. Because, I mean, and, and you're talking about a time where, obviously, you know, Sue Ann Niven was, was a fun character. And, you know, with Ted Knight and everything and Lou Grant in those days. But this was a couple of years after her husband passed away. So what was Betty going through in those days? Was she looking at her? I mean, again, she's she's been working consistently since the Golden Girls, but we're also talking about, you know, she's in her 50s, getting into her 60s. You know, how much who's going to want an actress that's about 60 at this time? Like, what was Betty's uh, Betty White's process and going into or Well, was she so gung ho about this part? Like, did she read it and go, yes, absolutely. Count me in. I don't care where. Or, or was she kind of, did she also have a little trepidation at first? I think it was a little of both. And the thing is about Betty, 
Betty is atypical in every way that you can imagine. And I can't go on enough about how much I love her and respect her. Uh, Betty was practically on television when they turned on the first cameras in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally lived in L.A., was one of the first TV personalities, has the longest career in world history and probably always will. Here she is at 99 and still out there. Uh, slowed down some, but I think still could do some stuff. Um, it's, it's So she really never slowed down. And a lot of actresses have always complained, rightly so, that when they get a certain age, the roles stop coming. I don't know if Betty really experienced that. She landed the Mary Tyler Moore show when she was in her 50s, playing a sex pot. Yeah. Continued to do roles after the Mary Tyler Moore show. Did the Golden Girls starting at age 63. Had oh, had a, that old. Yeah, that's right. Yes, had had a facelift and, you know, admits to those. And so she had kept current in, a, in the Hollywood currency of staying young, mm -hmm. but was still was always beautiful. Started this role at 63. And as you said, after the Golden Girls has never stopped. So the one thing that I would say that Betty was had trepidation about wouldn't necessarily be can I keep working or what does anybody want me? Because I, I mean, I'm sure she in her private moments has had those worries. Everybody does. But she has been fortunate enough and talented enough to have a career that has superseded all that. But the thing I think that she was most nervous about was playing Rose, because as she said, she knew how to play Blanche having done Sue Ann, mm -hmm. but Rose, how am I going to do that? How am I going to play this innocent woman? How do you, how do you do that? And uh, they advised her, that the director advised her that Rose takes everything literally. So just take the lines literally. And what's ironic is that Betty is so, such a brilliant woman. I, I don't know her IQ, but I would assume it's way up there. And the way she plays word games and, and, and is uh, was on game shows. So the irony for such a brilliant person to play such a simple, naive, and sometimes stupid person is... <laughs> Makes me think that maybe that's what it takes to play a, a, a stupid person. You have to be smart to know how to play stupid. And R Betty said, you know, I had no idea how to do this, but Rue has given had given her so much credit in looking back, saying, I would have had, Rue too says, I would have had no idea how to play Rose. But Betty found this way that the moment the, L the director yelled action, all of the light and intelligence just drained out of Betty's eyes. And so there she was. <laughs> Rue called them her little orphan Annie eyes and she would just be ready to take everything literally. And that was such a hard, such a hard role to play. I think it's the hardest role of the four to play because not only do you have to play it dumb or naive, but if you look at the writing in a lot of the scenes, not, not always, sometimes she would get them, but in a lot of the scenes, Rose doesn't have the cutting punchlines that the brothers yep. do because the character's not as smart. Betty has to find a way to be funny with lines that weren't necessarily written as punchlines. And she did such a great job at it. Yes, there'd be the occasional time when she'd say, can you believe that backstabbing slot where you knew it was a laugh line? Mm -hmm. But a lot of her jokes are more subtle and she had to find the comedy in them. And to this day, when I watch, there are so many drag troops around the country who play the Golden Girls. <laughs> when I watch the drag troops, I'm always looking to judge the quality of the drag performance overall by the quality of the actor and actress playing Rose, because that's the hardest role. And it's, it's to this day, I think the hardest role for even the drag queens to get. Right. Wow. That's uh, it, it's, it's a really good point because when, when the, when Rose has one of those lines where every so often where, Oh, maybe she finally figured it out. That's very tough acting. 
And where you have to, like, you can't just, you know, turn it on and off. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. B. Arthur is Maud in a lot of ways, where those are Maud isms that she's saying, especially in the early episodes, where you're like, okay, it's Maud, but I'll suspend my disbelief for a little bit. Um, I don't know how much audiences were well known of who Estelle Getty was at that time, but because uh, she was more staged. But yeah, with with Betty White, I mean, you have to go from happy homemaker to you know, somebody who's just generally happy, I guess. And so, yeah. no, no, what was it? I, I wanted to ask you because you got a chance to talk to, uh, uh, obviously you weren't able to get a hold of Estelle because she was in her failing days uh, with her health. But I, I found it funny that you met Betty White, but she was so busy when you were putting this book together that she had like an hour several months in advance that you had like you had to schedule things like you would uh, uh you know <laughs> a colonoscopy or something yeah it was interesting and really getting to sit with b and betty and rue coincident and i hadn't planned it this way but it ended up in each of their living rooms so you really got to see their the milieu around them mm-hmm. it was it, even the interaction setting up the interviews told a lot about the actresses they, it was very much in their personalities and with betty you know, I, I I happened to be reporting the book in 2006 in the spring. I lived in New York at the time, but I had a reason to be in L.A. and I had a hotel room to stay in with my husband for three months. So I thought, great, this is a good amount of time I can report this whole book. because It's hard to get people when you're just in town for a week. And so I put in the calls to the girls, of course, first thing, wanting to have as much leeway as I could. And I heard back from Betty's people right away. But this was in February when I was calling and they were like, she has an hour on whatever it was, May 10th. It was very far in the future. And I was like, I'll take it, you know, put me on that calendar. And I showed up at Betty's house. I had actually just come from interviewing the writers who wrote the hundredth episode of the Golden Girls at a restaurant. They happened, by the way, be the real life parents of Simon Helberg from uh, Big Bang Theory. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, I had lunch with them where I, didn't keep track of how much iced tea I was drinking. And I showed up at Betty's house like, oh, my God, do I have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> and I, I don't want this to count out of my hour because I still have to set up my recording equipment, my computer, whatever. And I showed up at Betty's door and Betty and her assistant both were, answered the door. And I said hello to Betty. I may have kissed her on the cheek. Hello, because I had met her a few times before and said, I hate to do this first thing, but I am desperate. Can I use your bathroom? And Betty said, I mean, this is Betty's sense of humor. She's so f- quick. She went, oh, sorry, I don't have one. I, I don't use the bathroom. I'm too nice. I just send guests to the rep to the gas station at the corner. And I was just like, oh, my God. And then she's like, it's right there. But, it's old-fashioned ball busting. Yeah, she was ball busting in a moment where I'm, I was going to bust. But then we <laughs> sat down in her living room, and her living room was everything you'd imagine. It was this 70s bright, sunshiny yellow that looked like it was straight out of Sue Ann's apartment, although it didn't have the mirrors on the ceiling or a bed or anything like that. <laughs> and we sat on the couch and her her dog Pontiac, who had been uh, trained as a, a seeing eye dog, I think, or maybe flunked out of training as a seeing eye dog, her golden retriever lay on my feet. Couldn't be anything more Betty White. There are dogs, it's bright and sunshiny. And even though I only had that hour initially, and then I actually did talk with her by phone more later, so I did get more time. But even though I only had that hour, Betty is so quick and so sharp that you could be like, okay, there's a season five episode where you're with the sunshine cadet Daisy and she's right there and has like, can give you a really great answer right off the top of her head. 
And so we got more accomplished in that one hour, probably than I, I get accomplished with most people in several hours. And uh, at the end, of, it's funny because as an interviewer, when somebody says, I only have a certain amount of time, I'm sure you know this, you, you say, sure, I'll, whatever time constraint you have, because you realize that sometimes they're just giving themselves an out in case they hate doing the interview. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they'll have such a good time with you that they'll just blow past that out time and be fine. In this case, I have it on my recorder. It says that we were at one hour and one minute when Betty's assistant came in and said, I'm sorry, that's all the time Betty has for today. She's got a, quite a busy schedule. And they went off to do something else. I packed up and left. But I, as I said, I had gotten so much from that. I did talk with Betty by phone quite a bit afterward. And what a dream it was to sit with her. At the time, I remember as I was packing up, I said to her, I, I would try, I would never try to be more bitter, maudlin or anything. At the time, she was 84. And I don't know what brought up the idea of mortality. I hope I didn't bring it up. But she said something like, you know, my mother lived to be, I think she said 88. And I'm 84. So I'm just appreciating every day I have. And I'm taking it, you know, doing, packing it with the most that I can enjoy and the most good I can do. And she was really philosophical about it. And look at that. Here she, here she is at 99. It's amazing. These, I don't know what what was in the water in those days because I uh, just recently, or I, well, I shouldn't say just recently because because of the pandemic, but about two years ago, uh, I got a chance to meet Hal Linden and Barbara Eden, and Barbara Eden. I mean, you'd think she's maybe sixty. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's almost ninety. It's incredible. Right before the pandemic, and she's incredible. And Hal Linden, I interviewed for the Love Boat recently by phone, and he's incredible. There, yeah. There, I hope there was something great in the water back then. We we do have as much as I. I'm at that age where, and you're younger than I am, but you seem to appreciate older television. A lot of the idols of my childhood in terms of TV stars, we, we're losing them mm -hmm. fast. But there are still so many with us, and they're, a lot of them are really still active, and that's wonderful. Yeah, just losing Carl Reiner last year at almost 100. We've yes. Dick Van Dyke's in his mid-90s. 95. Uh, Norm, yeah, Norman Lear's almost 100. Some of these, uh, I mean, what, what a year ago or two years ago, Olivia de Havilland was 104. I mean, my goodness. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping we can live a little longer, but it seems like some of the boomers had a little too much uh, nose candy in the 70s for their tickers. <laughs> so, True. I'm not, I'm not a boomer. So, I, yeah, I hope I'm there with you. No, I, I, I hope you stick around long enough, or at least especially <laughs> when I get you on next to talk about the Norman Lear book. Um, uh, but uh, I, I also want to ask you about the B. Arthur story because it wasn't as easy trying to wrangle. Because Betty, it's like, okay, here's the schedule. You show up, you do your one hour, and you're done. And the B. Arthur one was not as easy, and especially now looking back in hindsight, we're starting to play with Father Time, too, because they're not getting any younger. They were they were getting up there in age when the show was on, and now we're talking about the mid to late aughts. The experiences tracking down and interviewing E and Betty were diametrically different. And as efficient as the Betty process was, where, okay, she has an hour, months from now, and whatever, the B process was so different. And I don't know if you like four letter words on your show. So I will. Oh I yeah. Will no, no. <laughs> Trust me. I, I'm fine with all of them. <laughs> okay. Well, b with B, I went through the screen actors guild to find out where, who her representative would be to put in an official interview request. And I was given what they called a reference number. And I didn't know what that meant. It turns that it meant it was her home number. Mm. Um, because I guess she didn't have an agent handling that kind of request at the moment. So I call the number and I get a voicemail hello, I can't come to the phone right now. And I'm like, oh my God, I was not prepared for leaving a message for B. 
And so I'm sure I stammered like a geek and said, oh, Ms. Arthur, I really want to interview you. I'm, I'm, everything that it turns out that he hates. She hates when people grovel and they act like, you know, geek, like just treat her like a real person, but respectfully. And so I left her that message and I had programmed her number into my phone. So I, it, it, I remember the time, time frame being just so funny. It was the week that California finally passed a law against using your handset phone while you're driving. No, oh, of course. And so I'm driving down Santa Monica Boulevard and my phone rings and I look at it and it says B. Arthur. And I'm like, oh my God, she's going back. <laughs> so I pick it up and I'm risking getting a ticket. And she said, you know, I'm so glad, honey, thank you so much for calling. It's very nice of you to think of me, but I really didn't, I, I that was a tough time in my life. She had lost her mother during the first season of the Golden Girls and her, her, she had recently split with her husband before. So it was a tough time in my life. I don't love reliving it. And I feel like I've talked about it a lot, which are all valid reasons to say no, mm-hmm. but I didn't want her to say no. So I said, and I did say, you know, it wouldn't be the same without you. And I really hope you change your mind. And I don't know, you know, B was what I learned about her later was B made very quick d- judgments about people based on first impressions. And she was a really good judge of character. And so sometimes she'd meet you and instantly like you. And sometimes she'd meet you and instantly dislike you. And it was very hard to shake that impression. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, the dislike would be based on, based on something like you were wearing a baseball cap indoors or you were chewing gum because she had pet peeves. So, you know, so maybe she'd judge you unfair, unfairly in those cases. Or if you're Jay but, Thomas. Or if you're Jay Thomas, but she disliked him for what she thought he was trying to improvise on her show mm. and throw her off. So I understand that. Um, but, you know, maybe she liked me because at the end of the conversation, that first conversation, she said, well, you know, call me again next week and we can talk some more. And she kept leaving the door open. And we played this kind of cat and mouse game where I would call her and either leave her a message and she'd call me back or I'd talk to her directly and she'd soften a little bit more. I noticed she didn't like when I called her Ms. Arthur or when I was particularly fawning, like, oh, I just love you, Ms. Arthur. Like, I noticed she that that would get a a silence on the phone so i stopped doing that started calling her b and being as i said respectful but also direct with her which she seemed to like and it all came to a head after a couple of weeks of this playing tag where i was in the beverly hills public library before there was wi-fi everywhere because they had wi-fi and i was killing time between interviews and my phone rings and it says it's b and i'm in the middle of this vast room where I couldn't get up and leave my computer and leave everything and find a place that I could talk. And so I was just like, screw it. And I take the phone call and I'm sitting there on the phone in the very center of this big room of people studying. And I'm trying to talk to her, but she's not, I I think she might've had a little bit of hearing issues. So I did have to talk a little loud. People are yelling at me right and left. Shut up. You're in a library. What do you think you're doing? How dare you? And finally, I just had to, I took the phone away from my ear, but I left it where B could hear it. And I didn't do this deliberately, but it turned out to be something she loved. And I just stood up, stood up in the room and screamed, fuck you, it's B. Arthur. <laughs> and I went back to talking to her. And she laughed and loved that. And I think that ended up cementing her agreeing to do it. She, she did like the salty, me. she did like the salty language, though. She loved the salty language. She swore like a sailor. I think she loved that I was willing to tell off a whole room on her behalf. Um, she did tell me, call me next week, and we still played a little bit more tag. And But she also said, meet me at this uh, the reunion that the Paley Center in Los Angeles was doing of the Golden Girls cast and crew uh, that coming week. And so I was set to meet her, and it turned out she didn't come. But we, we ended up 
closing the deal. Because, and I think that was part of it because she really liked that I showed the real me. And as I said, every time I said something geeky, when I hung up from her that day in the library, I made the mistake of saying, I really look forward to meeting you next week at that Ellie thing, Ms. Ms. Arthur. And ugh, I could hear the derision in her voice. And she just said, I don't and hung up. <laughs> but we ended up go. I ended up going to her house, being in her living room. She had her bare feet up on the coffee table. She was always barefoot, only comfortable that way. Uh, for the first bit of time, she was not thrilled with talking Golden Girls and was giving me like, yes, no, baby. Then she got into it. Uh, we talked a lot about Maud as well because she loved talking about Maud. And at the end of the whole interview, uh, I had agreed to stay and have a drink with her. And she poured a, a bottle of wine, a bottle of white wine into the biggest balloon goblets I've ever seen. <laughs> so we were splitting an entire bottle of wine as we made small talk, which was very, that was one of those surreal moments where I'm looking around going, is this really happening? Am I really splitting a bottle of wine with B. Arthur with our feet on our coffee table making small talk? And at the end of the whole thing, she apologized to me for not showing up that night at the Paley thing when we were supposed to meet and also for just having giving me a hard time on the phone as she said it. She did in a way give me a hard time by saying things like I don't hang up, but I never took it personally. Um, but it was sweet of her to say that. And I even started to say, you didn't give me a hard time. And she saw I was being a goody goody. And she said, I did. And I was like, okay. <laughs> sure. And the, sure you did. Okay. This was the most telling thing after sitting with her, you know, as I said, with Betty, it was an hour of rapid fire answers, questions. I knew I, what I was getting. With B, it was three and a half hours of let's drink a little. She wanted to take a break to watch Judge Judy and I wouldn't let her. <laughs> she wanted, there was a, it was, it was much less centralized. I wasn't sure what I'd gotten out of her until I went home and listened to it again. But what was so remarkable is that at the end of it, I really felt like I had broken through with her and I learned something about her that everybody who knows her has verified this is true about her personality, which is that she had, B was the opposite of what you thought she was from the characters she played. Her characters were very tough on the outside. They were tall, imposing women. Maud, you wouldn't want to cross her. Dorothy would cut you down with a line if you looked at her funny. B is the exact opposite of that. B, yes, she had that physical exterior that people associated with that strength, but on the inside, she was so vulnerable and so mushy and so soft and loving but you had to break through that protective barrier. She was she had her guard up all the time. And so I think that people who spent only a short amount of time with her, like Jay Thomas or like whoever, who only got to see the tough part of her for an hour, would never break through. And I feel like in some point in that three and a half hours, I broke through and really was getting the real her. And she was being so lovely and loving to me, sitting there having that talk that when I got up to leave, after I'd packed everything up, I said to her, and I told her, I, I haven't done this with anybody else. I'd already talked to Betty. I'd already talked to so many writers. I said, I haven't asked anybody else this. Can I give you a hug? And we stood up and I gave her a hug. And for the very first second of that hug, she was very stiff in my arms. And then I felt her relax. Just melted, melted in your arms. Melted in my arms, exactly. That's the way I say it. And I thought, you know, that is, that is the entire experience in one moment that she was guarded, and then I got to see the, the, all the loveliness of her. And I, I, I still tear up when I think of that day, that I'm so lucky I got to spend that day with her. How was her bathroom, by the way? Bee's <laughs> bathroom, I don't remember. I did use it because I was there for three and a half hours, so I don't remember Bee's All that bathroom. wine. All that wine you probably had to evacuate. All that wine. Well, you know, you know what happened? There were two things going on that I was trying to make the story shorter that I didn't tell you, which is that we didn't get to drinking until it was a little after five, and I had to get a 
rental car back to West Hollywood by six before they closed. And, and, and you're just, in what Palisades? This was in um, in Brentwood. Brentwood, okay. B, well, no, you're right though. The other thing is that B lived in, in Pacific Palisades, but her sons were renovating her house at that time, and so she was living in a rented house in Brentwood, up the street from Betty, actually. And so I was B wasn't sure where even the corkscrew was when we tried to open this wine because this wasn't her house. We were in this rental house, um, which is maybe another reason why I don't remember that bathroom, but. Uh, we had to down that wine in like a half an hour, 40 minutes so I could get on the road. And I'm calling Hertz saying, I'm, I'm on my way, but please don't close. I was with the Arthur, like making every excuse I could. And they agreed to stay open with me for me until I got there because of, I threw B. Arthur's name in there. Um, that's, that's what I remember. I, I don't think I got to return any of the wine before I left B's house. because I was in such a rush. Boy, drinking with B. Arthur and uh, making her, because I know she was a big Judge Judy fan and everything. That was that, that's fantastic. But I, I'm literally, so... you can hear on my recorder her getting restless, and then I, she mutters under her breath, "It's ten minutes to four. Judge Judy's on." <laughs> and I, I had the thought went through my head. I was like, I have tried to get this woman to sit with me for three months, and I have to go back to New York in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to lose getting another shot at her. I'm not going to let her go to watch Judge Judy. I'm sorry if I'm being mean. So I just ignored her. Mm. And then you hear at another point on the tape, at the, 4.15, I guess I can misjudge Judy for one day. So <laughs> I love that she gave loved up Judge, Judge Judy. Judy with me. Oh, yeah. Well, ju- doesn't it make sense? Judge Judy is no nonsense. And that's what B was. B called herself a bubble pricker. In other words, she, was, she had a great bullshit detector and wouldn't take bullshit from people. That's why she didn't like when I was doing this, the, the groveling. She just wanted it straight. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 no wonder she loved Judge Judy. Yeah, I, I could actually see her playing Judge Judy if they ever made a movie about it. Uh, well, yeah, but, and there's actually an episode, of Judge, there's an episode of Judge Judy where B's in the audience. Oh, I didn't know this. Because it, I think it had something to do with PETA, which was one of B's favorite uh, causes. And so B was there for support and, and loved the show anyway. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, it's uh, I, I won't keep you too much longer. I, I really appreciate you being being on here, and this is fantastic. I, I want to ask a couple more things, just like you know, I don't maybe rapid fire or whatever. But favorite guest stars, favorite recurring stars, and uh, Golden Girls, like ones that fit. Like I'll say for me, the favorite guest stars. When we're talking about quick like things, I love the Pat McCormick. In in the uh, drugstore about the condoms, the, yeah, <laughs> condoms, condoms, Rose, condoms, condoms. Calm down, lady. Did she just get out of prison? It's just such a great Pat McCormick line, especially knowing all the stuff we know now. After, uh, you know, uh, but then like I, I always thought Harold Gould was just fantastic as Rose's boyfriend, who was also in witness protection, because it was he had that vulnerability too, where what. What came out of it was it really seemed like some of these guest stars and some of these people who really got the show, like Herb Edelman, perfect. I mean, I can't think of a better guy that, well, would, would have been a perfect interview, but he passed away about 25 years ago. He passed away in the 90s, so yeah, he well before I was doing the book. Yeah, but it was, I mean, the the guest stars that they had, and a couple of them, like they had, you know, the one episode with Sonny Bono and the, the one episode with uh, uh, Burt Reynolds and Bob Hope, but like Jack Guilford was great in the show. Jack Guilford, who had a long career, and I think he he passed away. Maybe I think he passed away during the show was still going on. Uh, but like, who were some of your other favorites that uh, that you can point out that you, you watched that and you just said, "Yep, perfect for that show." Well, for recurring characters, it's hard not to choose Miles or Stan because they are by far the most 
most common recurring characters, but also, as you said, they were so perfect. What I love about the Golden Girls guest casting is that some shows do only stunt casting. And by that, I mean people play big stars playing themselves or big stars playing roles. I thought they did that that with Hot in Cleveland. When Hot in Cleveland was on, it just seemed that I get it. They kind of took that Golden Girls concept of bringing the guest stars from the the remaining ones from the golden age and everything. But boy, were they really just jamming them in there going like, ah, this is just kind of clunky. Okay, I get it. You want to marry Tyler Moore. You want, uh, you know, whoever it would be that would be in there. It's just it seemed clunky and forced. Golden Girls, there were a couple of times the Bob Hope one was it seemed kind of forced, but others it seemed that, oh, no, 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 this this person really fits this episode. Well, yes. I mean, and so stunt casting can work sometimes. And I think it did work in the few times the Golden Girls did it with Julio Iglesias or Bob Hope or Burt Reynolds. They work. Um, some shows are become famous and even infamous for stunt casting, like Will and Grace, where it was a different giant star coming on the show every week. And sometimes those episodes were great. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But the show gets to be known for that as a gimmick. That's why I think. Yes, that's three. what I think Saturday Night Live's become now. It's not so much about the cast. It's about who can play you know, whatever politician or whatever pop culture figure. And it, it, it seemed like SNL has gone down the road of stunt casting, too. Yeah, although that show was always based on having, a, you know, one high-profile guest mm. that was highlighted every week. With the Golden Girls, they really did something that shows are not doing as much anymore, which I wish they did, which is organic, just organic casting. When you have a guest star role, it doesn't have to be somebody who's promotable and, and as a giant movie star who's coming to our show this week. Just get the best actor, who whether it's a, a, a you know a, a character actor whose face America will know, but that he's not he or she is not a star. Just get the best person for the role, whether it's a big star or not. And I, I think that they, the Golden Girls did that so well, and that's evidenced by the fact that among the love of the show, it's not just our love for the four women, but it's our love for those guest stars. And you could name characters, and people can say exactly who that character is, who the actor was what some of the lines are. When you go in that Golden Fans at Sea Cruise, people dressed as some of these. They dressed as Mr. Haha or as, uh, you know, or, or, or as, as uh, it's Sophia's sister or as Frida Claxton. You know, a lot of these people who were only there for one episode really made a mark by just being cast perfectly for the part. And I would say that if you ask me who my favorite one is, it's got to be Barbara Thorndike mm-hmm. because she's such a great villain. And the the whole bit about her calling Blanche Madge and about going to the Mortimer Club and the stupid literary puns on the menu, it, she really nailed it so perfectly. She's such a perfect bitch you love to hate. And <laughs> the, I think that's evidenced by the fact that not only were people on the cruise dressed up as Barbara Thorndike, there's even a Twitter account where someone's Barbara Thorndike and they tweet every once in a while, oh, hi, Madge, uh, or they tweet, you know, George Bernard Slaw. It's just <laughs> for, for a, a blip in time, like just one moment on a sitcom, one episode of a sitcom, to still mean something to people from that little bit phrase 30-something years later, that's saying something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think when I – well, there, there's somebody also – you probably know this on Twitter – that there was a guy for a while who was drawing – he was doing a B-a-day. Mike Dennison, yes. Yeah. An, art, an artist in New England who does, who did B-a-day, and then he did, I think, Betty or Rue a day. And he it was all puns, but like pop culture posters and stuff with the girls in them you, you know right. i honestly i tried to do that concept i did i think i did four of them and i was trying to do william conrad and so i was trying to do different things with william conrad and i just got kind of bored with it i'm like how many times am i going to put william conrad as homer simpson or 
whatever the case is. That's but, that's a little bit esoteric. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I tried. I, yeah, I basically stolen concept at that point. I was really mad at myself, by the way, because I, I just got married last year, and for we went down to the to Key West for honeymoon. Even though th- things were really closed, yeah, you know, it was about thirty percent. It wasn't completely. It wasn't what Key West is now. But we drove up to Miami Beach, and we went to a cafe on Miami Beach. And I didn't realize the place that we went to was right next to the Carlisle, which is what the Golden Palace Golden was Palace, based off yeah. of. And I'm like, if, yeah. had I known that, because I, I think somebody put all the Golden Palace episodes on YouTube, and I was watching, and I looked the Carlisle, and I looked it up, I'm like, I was right next to it. I saw it, and I didn't put the connection together. But uh, Golden Palace, that was, uh, that's the last thing I wanted to ask you, is the finale, and then the Golden Palace, how that ended up becoming something where the finale, B. Arthur was basically done with the show, uh, she marries Leslie Nielsen, and we kind of, you know, we kind of have the send-off. What prompted the rest of the group to go, okay, let's see how much more we can squeeze out of this concept? Well, I, it came from a good impulse, which is that they, I think this group knew that they were a dream team, that these actresses work great together, these writers were a great staff together. It just, they didn't want to end, and, and they loved each other for the most part. So I, I think that always comes from a positive impulse. He was done. She felt that the show had was going to peak and was going to head downhill in terms of quality. And, and she didn't. She was always someone who didn't like to stay at the party too long. She felt the same way about Maude. She just knew when she was done. I, I'm not. I don't have that in my character. I tend to ride things till the very end until mm. they try to squeeze the last drop out of them for good or for bad. So I, I can't say I relate to that or understand it. But I have to respect that she felt that way. The others, though, felt that there was more life in this, and they came up with this Golden Palace concept. My feeling, and in retrospect, they all look back and say, we shouldn't have done Golden Palace. Because it just, as Betty calls it, it was like a three-legged coffee table. With B missing, it was just unbalanced. It just Mm -hmm. didn't work. Uh, But my problem with it is more thematic. That I love the Golden Girls finale. I loved the whole, it's actually based on a true story, which I can tell you in a minute. But then Golden Palace is, unfortunately, to me, it's kind of a betrayal of the Golden Girls audience. Because... The fantasy behind the Golden Girls is that, and the reason why we relate to it, is that your friends will be your surrogate family who will be there for you forever. And you can live this great life, even when you're older, when people are afraid of aging and disease and dying and whatever, you're going to go through all that together and you're going to make it better. And you're going to have laugh and lo- laughs and love and cheesecake and dates, even for every Saturday night for some charity ball that you're always seeming to be involved in. There's never going to be a shortage of great clothes you're going to have full hair and makeup when you wake up at two in the morning. Life will be perfect. So that's the fantasy. But what Golden Palace kind of does is rips the rug out from under that because it says, yeah, but then one of the one of you will find a man and ditch the rest of you. And then the other three, either out of boredom or financial necessity, I've, I've said in the past financial necessity and people have taken me to task for it, saying, oh, no, this was their choice, whatever. For whatever dumb reason, you will sell that nest egg of a house that you have buy a hotel, struggle to keep it afloat, have to be in business, have to clean toilets and deal with guests and scrub floors. To me, that's a betrayal of the Golden Girls. It seems like, why would we want, there's no fantasy now to, oh, now you're, in, so you're Sophia and you're in your 80s and you're working like a dog. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was clunky and yeah, you go back in time and watch it and it's, it's you know, Cheech Marin and a really young Don Cheadle, a part of it, but uh, 
yeah, it didn't it didn't really work out as well as they probably expected. And CBS was expecting a little bit more. But like, yeah, like you said, it's either that they keep that concept going, or maybe Estelle will film uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot Two. Two, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are Golden Palace moments that are worth it. When people ask me, should I watch Golden Palace? I generally say yes. Just keep your expectations lower than Golden Girls. It is not the Golden Girls. But yet there are moments that will remind you of it and that you will make you laugh and that you'll like. It's not it's not horrible. It's, it's just like it's, you know what it's like. It's like Archie Bunker's place. Yeah. Well, yes, I, it, I, I compare it to I, what like I say about pizza, where even bad pizza is still good pizza. Mm-hmm. Even Golden Palace can still be enjoyable. Yeah, it's, it's not it's, it's not, not terrible. Place. It's just it's not it doesn't have the magic is what it is. Right. Although there is a two-part episode where B comes back, and then it really does have some of the magic. So those are those two episodes are definitely worth watching. I think I watched, uh, I, and Herb Edelman was in one of them too, and and as was uh, was Harold Gould. Yeah, yeah. They 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 kind of brought them back, kind of like what they did with. Uh, then they do that with Frasier every so often. They bring a Cheers character back yeah. in like one yeah. quick quick scene, but. Uh, Hey, Jim, this has been fantastic. I just loved every minute of this, and I, I can't wait. I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Uh, Golden Girls Forever is the book, uh, and you know, in a, in a few months, I want to have you back on, talk Norman Lear, talk all things about this, because this, uh, it just your your career, everything has just been fantastic. Uh, uh, anything else you want to plug? Anything uh, that you have else going on besides the just the Norman Lear book? Yeah, well, the Norman Lear book comes out in October, so that'll be so exciting, and I really look forward to watching Norman. You know, this is Norman's baby. I'm I'm like the co-writer of the As Told To, mm-hmm. and so I can't wait to see Norman talking about this with the press and really, really basking in. The, the book is full of love for him. There are so many people in this in the book who talk about what a pioneer he was, but also what a great guy he is, and just in terms of his love for humanity and life. And so I can't wait to see him at age 99 basking in that. He deserves it. So that happens all in October. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'm, I'm writing a book about the Love Boat, which is another funny experience to be sitting watching these Love Boat reruns every day. And yes, and yes, the episode I watched yesterday, one of the opening credits is it says, and introducing Cricket, and it's a dog. So, you know, anytime you're writing about something as, as trippy as these great actors of yore having to share their opening credits with a dog, I'm I'm there for it. An- another another show where the main character is still alive, Gavin McCloud, ninety. Knock on wood. Yes, they are all with us, and uh, and I hope they are with us for a long time. They they still have appeared as recently as a few years ago in some events that Princess Cruises have have has done, uh, whether it's a christening of a ship or receiving a, a plaque on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So they are. Uh, they're a very cohesive unit and really have a lot of respect for each other, which makes writing a book about them fun because you want to write about love uh, within a show. That's that's why we're chronicling these shows, to to show how positive they were. Is there another show that uh, you don't think gets its just due that you could probably write about? I'm still thinking about it. You know, what will I do after The Love Boat? I have a couple of ideas. Fantasy you know, there are some shows. <laughs> could be. I mean, it's a natural <laughs> extension, right? There's, there's going to be a Fantasy Island reboot. So if that show does well, then... Certainly. If the show tanks, then maybe not. Um, there, there are so many great shows out there that luckily there have been great books written about. So even though I love, I, I did a book about Will and Grace, but I love that. I love Seinfeld and Friends and Sex and the City. Those have all been really properly chronicled. So, you know, I'll, I'll find I'll find a show I love that needs some love. Jake and the Fat Man? <laughs> Jake and the Fat Man was, I, I was actually in college for part of Jake and the Fat Man. So I have a little bit of a, of a <laughs> pop culture hole there because I didn't have a TV in college. 
So uh, I'll take your word for it. You seem to have a little bit of a William Conrad obsession going there. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm uh, uh, now actually no. I'm I'm in the process of writing a book about Hello Larry. So uh. <laughs> oh, good luck with that one, <laughs> Jim. Thank thank you so much. This is fantastic. And uh, yeah, uh, in October, I'd love to talk to you again and talk more uh, um, about Norman Lear and about everything else going on. But uh, again, this is just great. I, I can't wait to get the response from it. I'll I'll send you a copy of this. Please do. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I hope I didn't take up too much time. No, this is perfect.